0: Hello everyone and welcome to WhatsApp, a space for Asian American progressive voices in California. This will be the last episode before we go on hiatus today we have Lucy Shen, who's going to talk about what's up with youth and mentorship in the Asian American community. Thanks for
1: having me on. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no problem. So uh, yeah, Lucy Shen um, ran for the ADEM 25th district, as well as the Fremont Unified School District school board. Yeah. I think uh, from what I've gleaned from her resume and her uh, profile, she's a pretty prolific software engineer. So yeah, I hope we can learn more about uh, what she does and how that affects um the youth and um i'm really interested in the stuff that she's done with girls who code
1: (laughs) oh yeah 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 yeah
0: yeah and um yeah a couple other projects like that so Mm -hmm. um i'm joined here today with my co-host rex lay hi hi
2: (laughs) and on that note uh feel free to take it away rex well our opening question will be who is your favorite historical figure from the culture you identify with
1: yeah. Um, <laughs> so I um, I consider, well, I'm Chinese American. Um, so my, my family, my mom and my dad are both from Shanghai, although their families hail from different parts of China. Um, but I confess to not knowing a whole lot about Chinese history, to be honest. But I do remember once upon a time um, on another podcast, I'm a big podcast buff also. Nice. Um, they, There was, was it this American life? I don't know. One of the like big podcasts uh, brought up the history of like the so-called pirate queen um, whose name is and I just remember her being such a badass, (laughs) but then I never actually looked into like more of what she did. Um, I do just remember that she like basically did whatever she wanted and the government couldn't tell her to do anything without her actively going against what they wanted her to do. So that's what stayed with me. And I fully intend to read up on it more, but that's all I got. (laughs)
0: That's pretty impressive. Isn't it in Chinese culture where women are kind of like frowned upon in a way?
1: Yeah, yeah. In So the Chinese phrase is um, which is just that like it literally translates to um, valuing men and like not like weighing like men have more weight and women are have no weight.
0: <laughs> it's like the
1: very literal translation Ugh, of that. Terrible. Um, yeah. And it definitely it persists to this day, but I think in a kind of an odd Way like for example, if you think about the way that, um, um, like the percentage of women in China who work, for example, like working women, mm-hmm. uh, they have the U.S. beat on that metric, right? So mm-hmm. like in in many ways, it's. Um, Let's just say that the Cultural Revolution did some interesting demographic things uh, when it came to women's equality in society. And so there are still some things that have carried over from like (laughs) pre-Cultural Revolution times. But the Cultural Revolution itself was like a huge course corrector when it came to um, gender equality in China. Um, But yeah, definitely like the old traditions of Zhongnanqin still persist quite a bit, which is why um, Zhongshin has such a fun I don't know. It's, it's such yeah. an interesting character to me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. It was like, yeah, like all when you look her up, it's all like, yeah, she like terrorized the <laughs> China Sea. It's like a really dramatic. That's-
0: that's so cool because I mean honestly I'm not a big fan of actually I I detest Disney Rex loves Disney Um, but like the whole Mulan (laughs) thing where you have to pretend to be a man to like be empowered Uh, oh god why can't we have this story and I mean I really bring this up because uh, honestly from my experience um, women in coding is still kind of not as prevalent and um, as um, like as on equal footing as the typical white male that is like oh, yeah. your supervisor or your boss in the mm-hmm. coding organization. I mean, mm-hmm. think of think of the people that have like at the top of all these companies, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, whatever, Google,
2: Microsoft, whatever, like it's always this white man. And so I don't But know. the first like and most influential programmers, the one who brought us to exactly. space even were black women. Mm-hmm.
1: Literally the original programmers, like the people who invented programming as we know it today were those women at NASA?
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) They created modern programming. And yet here we are. Um, yeah, and I mean, yeah. the, the history of how we got there is also pretty interesting, right? Like the shift in thinking over, like originally the idea was that programming was really sort of like a rote task. Like anyone could do it. Yeah. Um, therefore obviously women should be the ones who do it. And then over time, as people realize that it's so much more challenging and like, oh, it actually takes a lot of like logical thinking and like procedural skills. And then they were like, oh, well then in that case, it's a man's job Like <laughs> as the thinking shifted yes. on like what programming is then the job also, um, in terms of who did it would also change. Yeah.
0: So I, 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 am- Actually think it's a little bit more like um, malicious, where as programming became more powerful, it kind uh, of profitable way, and profitable. But I see, I see, like it, mm-hmm. it's became more like, oh, yeah, we can use this as a different way to, um, you know, do calculations on how to drop bombs or I whatever.
1: Oh boy, <laughs> but, like, <laughs> the very literal power. Yeah. I mean, that's
0: yeah. a very literal interpretation. Um, so that, that begs the question uh, why are you so passionate about education and mentorship? Especially, uh, is it really, really relates to. To coding too, and or just in general. Mm-hmm.
1: I think just in general, honestly, but the way it has manifested for me has very much been in coding, right? Just because that's sort of the area I inhabit and it's the area where I have the most value to like offer to my mentees. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's just what naturally has occurred for me. But in general, I just I've always really enjoyed um teaching specific, like the act of teaching as a way of sort of deepening my own understanding of a subject. Cause I realized that like teaching somebody a subject is when I was truly challenged to like thoroughly understand the ins and outs of something. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was the moment at which I truly understood or grasped the concept was when I was teaching it to somebody else. And so for selfish reasons, (laughs) I really enjoy teaching, but also part of it is, um, I actually, I recently read Adam Grant's book, um, give and take, and in the book, he describes a lot about, um, like the whole books focuses about the fact that people are generally categorized into givers or takers or matchers. And some people are sort of like naturally predisposed to giving. Um, but that based on certain cultural norms that you set and like society and the way society moves and happens that people can sort of be shifted or pushed in one direction or another. And so in the workplace, for example, most people end up as matchers. Um, but for me, teaching is definitely an act of, of giving. And after reading that book, I realized that I did definitely default more to the, the giving side for sure, where I derived a lot of my personal satisfaction and reward from like the act of, of giving things to other people in a way that is like sustainable. Right. So that the thing that gives me joy more than anything else is when I give into a system that is sort of like naturally giving onward. So like it's paying it forward in a way. And Mm -hmm. I I can't always see that happening, but the feeling of knowing that I'm, I'm giving to somebody who will continue to pass things on, um, is what brings me the most sense of reward. And education and, and teaching and mentorship is like one huge way and very obvious way you can do that. Right. Because generally speaking, um, in my experience, the people that I've mentored have gone on to be mentors for other people. And so even if I may never directly come into contact with my like grand mentees or whatever, um, it's still a valuable experience. Like you really, you're giving back into a network that has also given to you. And so you're part of like a lot, a lo- a longer, larger narrative, um, and it just like makes you feel less like you're just a small organism floating on a rock in the middle of a vast universe like, <laughs> to feel more interconnected um, with the people around you. Yeah. I, I, in the end, it's this sort of chain or web of giving that uh, makes education and mentorship so valuable to me.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree. And, you know, me working at UCLA, um, and actually before then, uh, in India, a lot of my um, belief is that if we ever are in positions of knowledge, it's always important to share that knowledge, because uh, I see that as a privilege. And Mm -hmm. it's your responsibility to take that privilege and kind of distill it, not in a sense that like we know what's best but in a sense like this is what's available and I was
1: yeah yeah. like we're sharing into a pool of knowledge that everybody's taking out of right that's sort of like the end goal yeah
0: exactly and then I mean for me it's also fighting back against this notion of um, all these tools being used to oppress because in my opinion these tools can be uh, tools of oppression and so Mm -hmm. by giving it back to the community is really trying to strengthen the, the foothold against um um, these tools that come into the community and really try to tell the narrative. Get the youth out. Yeah, get the youth out, or like you know, you know, it's, if, or put them in a pipeline. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I mean, no. That's the thing. I mean, I, I, uh-huh. one of my most rewarding experiences in India was teaching like mapping and GIS and Google Earth to like kids in low in like basic squatter mm-hmm. settlements, mm-hmm. and um, they had a lab, and I was like, hey, look, this is you on the planet, and you know, wa- making sure that they walk away with the knowledge that like you know what earth is and how people collect this data and what it means for you is um, really up to you and your story it's not somebody else's um like you know uh data to tell and that's that's kind of been my modus operandi um so Mm -hmm. i I, I agree that you know sharing this pool of knowledge is really important because it really makes us better at what we do and Mm -hmm. um it, it really allows us to kind of um like hone our skills because like yeah I, I agree with you too like i like to teach because it helps me re like make sure i know what i'm doing <laughs>
1: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: um so yeah i, I agree with that 100 percent. but i also have the other aspect where it's like okay we should um always be continually trying to push others to this um like whatever field it is, whether it's programming, whether it's like...
1: Yeah, yeah. It's about eroding the barriers to access, right? Because the barriers themselves are, that's the oppression like mechanic. Exactly. Um, yeah.
0: That's exactly mm-hmm. um, what I was going for. So thanks. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Where was the origin of the network, the learning network that came down to you?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think I have just always operated on I guess for me, a lot of it goes back to like alumnus circles. Mm. Um, I like feel deeply connected to all the schools that I've attended for some reason. Um, I didn't have like, I honestly didn't really have the best pre-college experience in terms of like the schools that I went to. It was a little bit chaotic. My family was back and forth between here and Shanghai Mm. as I was growing up. Um, So my educational experience was very disjointed and a bit chaotic. Um, So Uh, it was hard for me to put down roots in the beginning. Um, and I think that's why as high school unfolded and I was finally able to like stay at a school for four years straight, (laughs) um, that I really valued like the connections that I built in, in those circles. And then I went on to, um, I don't think I realized at the time how impactful like my high school experience was to me. I thought it was just sort of like a mildly traumatic experience that I could leave behind me (laughs) that like maybe I'd I'd made some good friends out of, right? Like trauma bonding. (laughs) But um, I went on to college to a school that I specifically chose because it had such a powerful alumnus network. Um, So so no shade to UCLA, UCLA, but UCLA was one of my um, dream schools actually. And I did get in and I was like fully ready to go to UCLA, but I ended up choosing Wellesley College um, because it had such a strong, like tight knit alumnus community that I really just like was not witnessing in any of the other schools that I was even considering. Um and I don't know
2: three ruins. <laughs> we
1: could have had three ruins in this podcast. It's <laughs> true. Um but yeah that that choice to go to Wellesley was driven largely by like what I was seeing in the alumnus network. And for some reason I was just drawn to that in a way that was like impactful enough that it made me choose a school I had barely even considered over a school that I had considered my dream school, which was UCLA. Um, And it it turned out to be very true, like in the years since then, as I've attended Wellesley, there's like a saying that Wellesley alums would say to us when we were students, which was, Wellesley gets better after you graduate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And as students, we were like, what does that mean? (laughs) But as an alum now, I realize it means that Wellesley itself was a really, honestly, very trying experience. They made they. The gauntlet, (laughs) we ran it. It was a very great deflation-y. Really? Stressful place. Yeah, definitely. We came out of that with like the strongest possible network I've ever seen in terms of alumni. Um, Like, for example, I'm part of an alumnus uh, circle, I Mm -hmm. guess we call it. So it's kind of like if you've heard of like (laughs) Lean in Circles, um, which I guess Sheryl Sandberg kind of popularized. I don't personally... I have complicated feelings about lean in circles, but our alumnus circle is sort of focused on just like a set of intergenerational people, um, who come from different industries and backgrounds and et cetera. And we just meet once a month. And we're the one thing we have in common is that we all went to Wellesley and like that in, in and of itself is enough to unite us, despite the fact that we're all super different people. And we've continued this circle for, we're going into our fourth year now. So, um, I don't know. It's just pretty wild to me that like a connection that seems so arbitrary could be so powerful. Um, but that is these sorts of alumnus networks is these are now what drives me the most, I guess, because now I'm thinking about the mentorship work that I am thinking of driving in the coming year that I'll be trying to focus on more mm-hmm. is spinning up a, a mentorship network for our high school alums, because I realized through running my school board campaign, um, and, It our campaign was largely powered by the fact that like so many people had moved back home because of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas previously that just wasn't the case. Like there weren't a whole lot of people who were back in our hometown. Um, And so any organizing work we were doing here largely did not involve people that I knew in high school, um, but rather people I met outside of that in the community. But when it came to my campaign, everyone was willing and able to show up because they were all home for the pandemic. Um, so that was a shock to me, but I realized for the first time that like it was possible for us to try and build a more robust, uh, network of some kind for our alums that just doesn't exist at all currently. So I was hoping that mentorship would be something that would draw people in and keep them connected to each other. Cause I I realized during my campaign that like I was saying that I wanted to, you know, speak for our current students and like try to make their experience better than what I had. (laughs) As I mentioned, we had a lot of trauma. Uh, So trying to make a more healthy learning environment for our current students. And I was saying that, but at the same time, I didn't know a whole lot of current students. Like I only knew a few, Mm -hmm. maybe like, five personally. And I I would not consider that a very strong connection, um, to our current students. And I was hearing the same thing from our volunteers who were all also like alums of either my high school or like the neighboring high schools in Fremont. Um, so I don't know. I just, it, it seemed like infrastructure that we were missing. And so that's something that I want to also invest in now, um, as someone who like sees the gap. Um, and so I realized like, as you ask this question, it's not something I've thought about before, but I guess a lot of my, um, sort of giving back to what gave to me the thing the question of like who gave to me first mm-hmm. um, is really these different alum networks that i've been part of yeah
0: yeah so would you say you're closer to your wellesley alums more than the um uh high school Uh, It's
1: actually, I think it's pretty equal. Um, I think the, the Wellesley alums have more infrastructure and support because it's been ongoing for so long. We have like very formal systems of like local alum clubs, for example, that we pay dues to. Um, and then they organize fun events for us. Like these, this is something that's like systemically supported. Um, and it's also like encouraged and backed largely by our college as well, because it's part of their brand. Right. Like yeah. obviously it worked on me. <laughs> it was enough to convince me to go. Um, so since it's working for them, it's something that they value and invest in, but, um, it's not something that currently is bringing our school district, uh, my high school, at least my high school's alums are not bringing my school district any like tangible returns currently. Like we're not really like donors to the school, for example, mm-hmm. They don't even really have like, it's a public school system, right? It doesn't right. like, the donations they depend on are largely divorced from their alum networks. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, that's just a whole thing we don't even tap into currently.
2: How do you think you your life would have like benefited or changed differently if our uh, school, me and Lucy are both from Fremont, by the way, if our schools had given us access to uh, the mentorship you have access to right now?
1: Yeah. If so, let's, so the ideal state, right? (laughs) Sorry for the, sorry for the (laughs) um, engineering talk that's coming out right now. Um, the ideal state of the mentorship network that I'm hoping to build is really to, to create a system of like sort of generations of mentors. Um, so that people who are several generations divorced from current students can still feel like there's a pathway leading them back. Um, and I feel like if I were on the receiving end of that, originally when I was still in high school that I would have had so much more perspective um, beyond the bubble of our, because our high school was such a, a tense, stressful, traumatic bubble, um, <laughs> where we just had no perspective to the fact that none of the things that we were stressed about were going to matter in the long run. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Like we were so hyper fixated on um, getting into, I don't know, an Ivy league school. Like, it was just like these weird fixations um, that I don't know. It must've been that we were raised that way or like something about the culture of the school. There was just a stress culture, um, like weird competitive tendencies for us to be like, oh yeah, like, ha I got two hours of sleep last night. Oh yeah. Well, I got half an hour of sleep last night. Like weird, toxic re- standards, I guess, yeah. um, that were just normalized because we had no, visibility into other ways of existing (laughs) so like other value models right like our only value model that we had access to was this like very meritocratic um like uh hunger gamesy kind of environment um we viewed everything as a zero-sum game like if you got an a on this test then that means the curve is going to work against me you know so these kinds of like pitting people against each other <laughs> um this culture of pitting people against each other was what we were raised under and i feel like if i had access to somebody who um perhaps somebody like me right so someone who had graduated at this point oh my god i don't even want to do the math uh, <laughs> um almost 8 years ago um from high school and went to college on the opposite coast <laughs> and then like worked for a few years and like And ended up following a career path that high school me could never have imagined. Like I never thought I would end up in software. Um, (laughs) if I had access to somebody like this on a regular basis, let's say once a month or once every two weeks, just to talk to on a casual basis, I feel like I would have a much more open-minded view of like all the different ways my life could have unfold unfolded, no matter how I seem to have screwed up on my, I don't know, AP bio exam last night, you know, um, all of these, the, the, the way that the awareness that life is larger than like our little bubble in high school. I think that's what I was missing. And I don't know if that continues to be true for our current students, but um, if it is, that's something that I would love to help them balance a bit more.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that also plays into mental health in some way too, where absolutely. yeah. important uh, <laughs> grounding realization that you know um the education system <laughs> is traumatic in some respects and part of it i think is i mean i don't know how much it is uh, the asian culture of you know valuing education etc and how yeah. much of it is the western notion of like what it means to be educated because you know in in places like japan where you have like like um cram schools and all these other things Mm -mm. to get into um Mm -hmm. good high schools and colleges it's like you know a competitive merit-based thing as well yeah um but you know it's very much i think a western notion of like okay what does it mean to be successful
1: right yeah and the american dream of like pulling yourself up by the bootstraps like it doesn't matter how low you start it Mm -hmm. only matters how hard you work and like how far you can take yourself by your own sheer willpower right it's this like fake narrative that Mm -hmm. you can the american individualistic take of like you can depend solely on yourself and just like grind yourself down to the bone and that will automatically equate success. <laughs> like we know that that's not true.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, now we do, I guess, but as a high schooler, that's not at all something I was aware of. And you also bring up a good point, right? Which is that like my high school bubble had this experience, but, um, we were a really weird high school. Like <laughs> we were like 87% Asian when I went. Um, and also like very affluent. I am from a very affluent neighborhood. And so other schools, that are also under the Fremont Unified School District did not have my experience, actually. Like, I remember preparing for my campaign and finding out that, like, almost a third of students at one of the high schools um, in our city, almost a third of the students there were on the, like, free and reduced price lunch um, plan. Like, they had... They had that support because they needed it. And that was not something that I ever thought. Like one third was not a number I would have ever guessed, if you asked me to guess, mm-hmm. um, before I started preparing for this campaign. And at that moment, I realized that like my viewpoint was still very, very, very stuck in like my very specific personal experience in our high school system and in my specific high school. Right. That a mentorship program that spans the city could really help us better connect all of these little silos um, that exist within the city because we are geographically segregated still mm-hmm. along, um, like socioeconomic lines, basically. So, um, I feel like, uh, a more intentional, uh, carefully planned mentorship framework could maybe help us overcome some of those barriers. Um, and also help again, erode, erode the barriers a bit so that we have a more equitable educational system. Yeah, I agree. Just by virtue of it being more interconnected.
2: Yeah. I remember being on <laughs> the free and reduced lunches. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, it's interesting because actually, loosely, your experience is exactly the same as my experience in high school. Um, oh. Majority Asian, a lot of people want to go to Ivy League, uh, curved grading, blah blah. It's it's and and actually, um, full disclosure, like I had, s- I was basically um, really anti-education. I'm um, growing up. Uh,
1: wow, um, look at you now though <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah
0: that's, that's a, When you're talking about paths It's like you would not yeah. want me to teach <laughs> That's ridiculous It's just all propaganda <laughs> Now he's part of the system <laughs> Well, I mean It's funny because I took a year off of school Because I hated school um, After Was this in college
1: or uh, before after high school? College, I, actually, oh, I see, it's like a
0: gap year, yeah, gap year. I, Actually, mm-hmm. I wanted to be an artist, a musician So uh, <gasps> I was like writing music and stuff Oh, that's awesome That's <laughs> awesome But my bandmate left me So I was like, oh God. Oh but anyways, uh, yeah, so that, my experience was, all right, you know, if I'm going to be doing something like, like related to art um, and it's not going to pan out well, then, OK, I need to go back to school, at least figure out what's the next alternative. And that's where I went to, um, SF State, as mm. my um, kind of go-to school for environmentalism. But um, I also really, I studied film because I, um, <laughs> I OK, full disclosure, I, may, I grew up with these, like, groups of people um, making, like, anime music videos, and...
1: Yes! This is my culture! <laughs> oh, my God. Everything you're saying, I'm like, are you me? Like... <laughs> I culture. went through the exact same path.
0: But it seemed very much like that culture um, of... The competitiveness and just being able to um, express it oneself is always at odds, right? Because yeah. uh, it's it's basically the the capitalist regime versus um <laughs> trying to battle against you know progressive ideas. And and in my opinion, like social I, I would call it socialist ideas because things like mm-hmm. public education, um, you know, uh, just general things, post office, roads, those are all public goods that are socialist in nature, but.
2: Um,
1: right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that, like, mem- for some reason we've been taught to think of socialist as a bad
2: word. And so yeah, exactly. like,
1: it feels like a very loaded word when you choose to use it. Yeah.
2: But mentorship was like how people originally like passed on knowledge. Not everyone mm-hmm. could afford to mm-hmm. huge Like apprenticeship.
1: Saying. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. It's apprenticeship. Right. back then that was how people did it and because not everyone could afford classrooms and private tutors
1: yeah yeah and like mass communications are a totally different thing now also right like yeah. pre the printed word even like apprenticeship was your only way to learn anything
0: yeah yeah especially i mean now that you mentioned too with um how students are doing nowadays in the you know um, school districts that you mm. ran for and just in general mm-hmm. like everything being remote is also kind of like a completely different um changed i think in terms of how
1: yeah yeah and it was so sudden right we had no time to prepare for it yeah Mm -hmm.
0: yeah exactly but i I do think that's you know zoom bombing and uh all these other stuff is very um, much like i mean if you think about how i I honestly for me education is just crazy because like you, you have these uh, school shootings, you have these all these mm-hmm. like things bundled into it. That um, it it really feels like um, resources are just um, concentrated in certain places and deconcentrated in others. To
1: create oh yeah, absolutely. Unequal, mm-hmm.
0: um, kind of like American dream struggle, where like if you're if you like skin color is black, oh you're gonna have a much harder time to.
1: Yeah, um, that's life in hard mode. Like, yeah. come on.
0: And, and yeah. It's, yeah, I mean. <laughs> That's that's all I have to say about that. But
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's a whole other conversation. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um I I think you did touch on your ideal model of youth mentorship. Um right? Mm -hmm. Or did you wanna Oh yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, that it basically goes back to what I was saying earlier about like having a network that gives into itself or has a culture of giving, right? So the giving compounds on itself. Um, and that's what makes giving sustainable. I, honestly, I'm kind of just quoting from, from Adam Grant's book at this point, really good book, big recommend. Um, but it's, it's basically just the idea that like, if you're, if you're a giver, the the dangerous trap that you can slip into is that you give until you have nothing left. Right. And people keep saying like, Oh, you got to fill your own cup first, et cetera, et cetera. But for a lot of givers, um, the way you fill your cup is by giving. Mm -hmm. So how do you give in a way that fills your cup instead of draining it, um, is the core question there. And the answer that Adam proposes and that I do like deeply resonates in my soul is that you give, um, you give in a way that continues to give without you having to constantly continue giving. Right. So because the giving compounds on itself, you only have to give a little bit and you see it like multiply um and that's the magic of it and that's if that's where you're getting your energy from then you're also automatically filling your own cup so um that is sort of my ideal model not just of mentorship but of any community um is is that it's like a community that encourages and values givers and giving um behaviors and and that's why like it's okay for some takers and some matchers to exist in communities like that because when the norm is to give then even takers and matchers will will do that yeah
0: Kind of like the reverse of the public, uh, the tragedy of the
2: commons, right?
1: It is the exact reverse of the tragedy of the commons, yeah.
2: Yeah. And Rex, are you familiar with that term? I am familiar with that term, but it's one of those terms that gets thrown all around so much by everyone who's like, opposed to okay,
1: uh yes yeah the tragedy of the commons thing for me in my brain is all for some reason it's a very specific visual of um like a meadow yeah
0: yeah yeah, yeah me too the cows great and there's thing. cows yeah, 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 yeah exactly. i don't know why oh it's God. like
1: such a specific <laughs> mental image
0: yeah it's, yeah. Seriously, yeah go ahead go go explain it to rex
1: oh yeah yeah okay so i guess uh not just for rex but for any listeners who might not know the tragedy of the commons yes. um imagine that you are living in a village society where everyone is like a farmer and you have cows and there's a village meadow that nobody owns um it's a public good um and so you can graze your cows on that meadow as much as you want and so what happens is people just like get their cows to graze as much as possible and get more cows because the food for the cows is free and then eventually the meadow has no more grass on it and it's dead um because everybody has like sort of Seeped as much as they possibly could out of um, what seems to be a free resource, um, instead of like sustainably continuing it. So um, that's sort of the tragedy of the commons, and we see it manifest in our day to day lives all the time. Um, yep. In terms of like the free rider problem, is usually how it shows up. Yeah.
0: Yep. So, <laughs> so does that explain a little bit more, Rex?
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, but it's. <laughs> I've always heard it a lot as like, either pro. Uh, Either anti-progressive ideas,
1: yeah, people would we'll throw it out
2: as like, this is what happens yeah. if you switch to like socialism. Everyone's just gonna be freeloaders, well, <laughs> or yeah. as like authoritarian, pro-authoritarian ideas, where mm. if you don't regulate the people, they are gonna be stupid and just exhaust the resources. So we have to have centralized distribution. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, okay, so for disclosure, Lucy, uh, I chose to go to UCLA only because of one professor. Um,
1: oh, and, knowledge. <laughs> and, and literally, it
0: was Donald Shoup. So if you've never heard of Donald Shoup before, mm-hmm. he's the guy. Uh, everyone who's on this podcast, please look at Donald Shoup. He is a legend. Um, he, he, basically, he's an urban planning professor that wrote the book, um, The High Cost of Free Parking, or the... Um, it's basically about how, it. how, how parking is actually the tragedy of the commons, and we can easily adopt any economic policies um, to to retrieve that tra- um, public good of uh-huh. parking on a open like public space. Interesting. Um, his his uh, met- methodology of teaching about how um, we can leverage like basically if you put the authoritarian things that Rex is talking about in place mm-hmm. and visibly. Um, reinvest that in the community right, immediate, to wherever these parking lots Mm. are, or these meadows Mm -hmm. are, then the complaints Mm -hmm. are very minimal. Because it's like, oh yeah, sure, the the cost of, like, grazing on the meadow is more expensive, but at least now we have, like, these fancy um, expanded meadow, like, fences that people mm. you know, raise in certain times mm-hmm. um, so it really you know drives home just like from a purely economic and capitalistic view that even if we adopt like uh, progressive ideas in like a purely uh, was it a free market laissez-faire thing it's mm. actually progressive but because we have all these stupid like capital like quote-unquote capitalist things that like oh yeah we're going to subsidize farming oh we're going to subsidize the military industrial complex it's actually <laughs> like and, and this is i know why bernie always comes up when i'm on the show but this is like <laughs> Where it's, it's like we we it's socialism, and I think uh, Martin Luther King said something like that, where it's socialism for the rich and then rugged individualism for the poor.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was just ranting on Twitter yesterday about the mortgage income tax deductions. Um, it's the same crap. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and no, seriously. Yeah. And and then you have this like stimulus tech check that just got passed yesterday where, hey, look, yeah. if you're making more than eight dollars uh, seventy-five thousand, you get zero. I'm like, oh, of course, because you know, anyone making eighty thousand a year is rich in the, in the Bay area.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dear <laughs> <laughs> God, yeah. So. Yeah. I, I'm actually really curious about like how um what's his name? Donald Trump would would think about like climate change right so like for example carbon emissions are like a very classic example yeah, of yeah, um yeah. the tragedy of the commons currently because like these externalized costs um are not being accounted for yeah. and it sounds like his thinking on on parking is actually largely about externalized costs that are not being accounted for Exactly it's the same problem yeah, yeah.
0: so if we talk about positive externalities and negative externalities yeah I mm-hmm. um i mean he's very much like you know uses the tools of these kind of like urban planning departments and stuff against the de- the de- departments because oh. like, we should not be because like you know places like Fremont Palo Alto they have what we call parking minimums uh, where it's like if you build a building you have to have a minimum number of parking spaces oh yeah yeah Boston has the same thing yeah, yeah mm-hmm. and it's dictated by white men back in the 1970s and 60s when they were coming out with this um, national highway book and and the mm-hmm. freaking highway system is completely socialist because it was yep. built in the 1940s be- with yep. federal money and people are like this is American freedom actually. <laughs>
1: <laughs> actually this was paid for by taxpayer dollars and yeah. taxes are socialist so <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, yeah so I yeah. Mean, that that's my two cents on that sorry to yeah take you away from education but <laughs> i don't
1: know for sure no it's a fun conversation yeah and it's relevant yeah
2: yeah uh, uh, <laughs> but, okay. mm-hmm. um Rex. yes how do you avoid well oppressing the youth while mentoring them with all these institutions because <laughs> school is i don't know a lot of uh, progressives are nowadays are saying that, and I kind of see it, the schools are kind of basically centers of indoctrination rather than
1: mm-hmm.
2: actual places to mentor the next generation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I think the first thing, the first step is to admit that you can't avoid institutional oppression. Like it's impossible um, because that's the system that we exist within. And if you wanted to break entirely out of it, we'd be looking at something totally different that doesn't at all look like the mentorship systems that we are used to currently as like sort of standard mentoring. And so um, I think I think the key is really to call it out um, in your process to like to recognize very explicitly with, with the youth that you're mentoring, that like we are part of a broken system and, um, you and I, what we're doing here in this mentorship program is also also really part of that broken system. And, um, there's really no avoiding it. So the best we can do is the best we can do basically. So w- within the boundaries of the system, what can we do <laughs> incrementally, um, for each other and for our networks so that we can try to grow beyond it. Uh, and it's obviously like, it, it feels really weird. It's like a catch 22. Um, What's the thing that people always say you have to like you have to play the game to change the game? Like you have to play by the rules. I don't know how much I agree with that necessarily, yeah. in the sense that like true revolutionary change only happens when there's a goddamn revolution. Like
2: yeah. that's not playing
1: by the rules. Um, but I do think that for the time being, that harm reduction has value. I that's my personal belief. Um and I think that mentorship networks within these oppressive educational frameworks that we do exist within um does inherently have value because. I don't know. I guess it's all hypothetical, but for me, like this is a program that I would have like a mentorship program that involved people who came from my high school would have been a huge help to me personally. And it's hopefully also, these are things that I would have continued to pass on also. Um, and I am right. Like I received a lot of, of help from a mentorship network that does exist in my college network. And I'm trying to give it back to my high school now. So, um, I'm hoping that I wouldn't consider it like institutional reform in any way. I do think that we are still sort of operating under the, the modest operandi of like this institution. Um, But I think there are things we can do better within those boundaries. Um, And I think that's worth the energy that we put into it. Like, it's one thing to say that the system is broken and then to do something to change the system, um, or to do something to improve things within the system. But what I usually witness is people saying the system is broken and then they like sit back and don't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the system yeah. is so broken. Like I can't do it. And like, I understand how that can make you feel trapped, right? That you're looking at the system. It's so incredibly broken. Where do I even start? What could I even possibly do to change anything if it's like this broken, but I feel like in many ways it's just defeatist and it's not contributing anything. And I yeah. would rather be doing something, um, that at the very least, Least is not harming anyone um and at the very best could be improving a lot of lives and experiences so yeah,
2: the system wasn't yeah. built in a day and neither was yeah. a system that it overthrew
1: exactly exactly yeah and and when time comes for revolution i'm hoping that i'll be able to be on the right side of history but <laughs> until then <laughs> I'll be
2: on the left side of history.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It will be what's left. (laughs) Oh, Um, no. (laughs) Definitely, Lucy, what I I think that you're kind of, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think Mm -hmm. what you're alluding to is kind of like a multi-pronged approach where, you know, you have one approach that's within the institution, Mm -hmm. one approach that's outside the institution, and Mm -hmm. another approach that's kind of like really in the business of connecting all these things um,
1: yeah, together, yeah yeah yeah.
0: push all this change that needs
1: yeah. to yeah the visual in my brain is always like okay for some reason it's very specifically the wall from like attack on titan like that <laughs> thick ass wall like a really <laughs> tall like insurmountable kind of a wall mm-hmm. right and that's sort of like these are the barriers between the institution and those who are left out of it is kind of like how i think about it and you need people who are both inside the wall and outside the wall to like chip away at it from both sides in order for you to reach each other yeah right um it's a very literal interpretation but like that's how it visualizes and i'm just a very visual person and that's the visualization in my brain um and the third part that you mentioned earlier actually is something i hadn't thought about too much which is like the messengers that relay between the two yeah um and that's also super valuable and i realized that's actually what our organizing frameworks are like local organizers that's what they're doing right the whole point is to like connect the people with like their governance systems, um, yeah. and so they're they're the messengers in between. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought about the third component as much before.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, I, I just think about it all the time because I find myself going between all three. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, like I, you do need people who are familiar with all three roles. Yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, well, is this because, like, uh, just personally speaking, my, my like, I try to, like, because I, I started off really much being against the system. And uh-huh. I kind of like fell into this role of, like, okay, you know, maybe I can be within it. And now I'm kind of like falling out of that role of being within the system mm-hmm. and making the change to be more of a messenger type of thing. And mm-hmm. I mean, this podcast is one idea where it's just like, okay, let's, let's see what good um, people are doing. Uh, to kind of like break these barriers down. And so, I mean, I'm glad that you um, were able to come by and give us some experience with that because I, I do think that... Um for for me, when you say the notion of like, um, the wall is insurmountable, if you're looking at it and it's mm-hmm. like the fetus, it reminds me of about like techno-fascism and how um, you know this idea that um, machine learning is undefeatable. Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook are like huge things that cannot be destroyed. Um, Amazon is a necessity of life. I mean, these are all notions of defeatism that I also associate with the yeah. idea that technology has just been given too much weight and the social aspect of where technology comes into play has been kind of shoved under the rug so that people mm-hmm. in these technical. Uh, notions of power, Twitter, Instagram, blah blah, can actually like influence um, the social narrative without even like lifting a finger, just because it's mm-hmm. so overwhelming. Uh, and exactly. so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you agree with that, but yeah.
1: no, you can. So, I mean, like, <laughs> you can take individual action against a system that you think is broken, right? Like, yeah. even if it, even if it's purely symbolic, um, I still think it has value. So, I mean, in my case, I'm like almost a year into my Amazon boycott. It's going pretty well. Um, <laughs> I would say that Amazon. Three. It's not that big of a necessity of life after this one year of boycotting it um although my family continues to insist on using it and they think my boycott is stupid but,
0: same same my um, sister's <laughs> like hey you want this thing it's on amazon prime
1: exactly like you can get it yeah. in two days or even one day if you were to get it on amazon prime i'm like no thank you i'm gonna go on ebay like
2: yeah covid <laughs> or, taught me ebay <laughs> exactly
1: like turns out ebay actually is really great and i mean what i know of the founders <laughs> of ebay is like i'm just so much more in alignment with their values than i am with amazon's
0: yeah um So it's definitely more a free market approach than I I, I think. Like
1: And like free cycle is another option that I haven't explored as much. Right. Yeah. Like that's a whole community based approach also that I feel like should be given more value in general, like American individualism has like eroded our community mentalities in a way that like, I hope is not irreparable. And I see people investing into like building it back up and it gives me hope, but um, we can do better. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I agree completely
2: um fun like that from high school to where i am now my uh political chart is like a straight diagonal
1: (laughs) i feel you i feel you i feel you a lot on that yeah for Uh, sure I was fully indoctrinated into the system in high school.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's funny because, like, yeah, I have always been this like rebel. You've
1: been the rebel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's it's interesting because, like, I mean, I don't want to say it's as a prideful thing. I mean, there's mm-hmm. just two sides to it. Um, because I mean, I would do like, like, okay, some of the stuff I did in high school was pretty silly.
2: Um, yeah, high school was like rough on me, and I hated the system as well. But I didn't have a lot of friends, and you know, when you're isolated cis man. yeah. Mm. <laughs> you turn to the ideology that sounds the most uh, macho and macho.
1: Yeah. So, Fashion. so then, what what pivoted you? If you were I, that far out, uh, my
2: sibling, honestly, <laughs> my sibling uh. like went. Through, they well, be, being like they're they're not cis, so mm. and they have different expectations uh, for my family. Mm-hmm. So they went through they left the house first and they're a younger sibling and they went through their whole political journey. And while I was still stuck in my like little isolated bubble, I did have like progressive friends and progressive teachers in college that kind of like introduced me to the concept Albert amongst them. Mm. But for the most part, I was like still trapped in my little mind. And then my sibling just like found the opportunity like, Hey, Come join this uh, little uh, Vietnamese progressive camp with me. Mm-hmm. And they like gave me the terms to understand what I'm going through, like intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. That, that word just like kind of like woke me up because I never heard it used in the context of like uh, people outside the context of like chattel slavery for uh black folks
1: mm-hmm. yeah like for you, us, you it sounds like you were you felt like you were seen really for the first time yeah
0: yeah yeah why were you lucy
1: yeah uh it must have been my college experience for me just the fact that i was able to leave my high school bubble when i say i was indoctrinated in the system i just meant that i like fully bought into the the meritocracy myth right um, so the idea that like all of my success can be wholly attributed to the fact that I myself am an incredible human being
0: that way. I kind mean, of, <laughs> I, I kind of buy into it too. I don't
1: know, buddy. <laughs> um, like since then, what I realized is I think honestly, a, a big moment for me actually was right there in our orientation week to college. Um, they, honestly, we had a, Wellesley's a fancy liberal arts, like private college. The tuition was sky high. So it's like, it's a fancy, fancy. <laughs> Place. Um, although I really am proud of like how good Wellesley is about um financial aid. Like we're one of the best schools when it comes to offering financial aid. Half of our students are on some kind of financial aid, which is like a huge percentage. Um, but I was one of many fortunate students who was I was not on financial aid. And um early on, I think very early on in orientation week, they do a um uh there's an event that happens every orientation. It's kind of a tradition now. It's called Let Me Speak. Um, and it's like a staged production and I think either before or after we watched those performances um, there, the moderator did a, an exercise with the audience where they were like, okay, like all of you, um, like everybody stand up and like sit down. If you like didn't have enough, like if you, if you came from a background where like your family wasn't always sure that you'd be able to like, like where your next meal was coming from or whether you'd have a roof over your head. It's like that there was sort of like food instability and like shelter instability in your lives. And like a certain portion of people sat down and then it's like, okay, like sit down. If you feel like you led a fairly average existence in terms of your financial background that your family was able to take, I don't know, a vacation once a year. And like, we're reasonably able to like, Feed and house, um, your like your parents were able to reasonably feed and house you, and another portion sat down, and then like okay, we'll take a seat now, and, and you're looking around, you realize there are only a few people standing left. Um, take a seat now if you. Like, really, you come from a background where you've never had to worry about food being on the table, a roof over your heads, you took as many vacations as you wanted, pretty much that you were capable of as a family, Um, that, like, these material needs were never a concern for you. Um, And as I was still standing and, like, listening to that, I realized that uh, I came from a background of, like, extreme privilege, actually, and, like... Also at in that sort of like somewhat radicalizing moment in retrospect um that that should not have been a background of extreme privilege that should have been like a right that everybody who was sitting around me should have ac- had access to and it was just like infuriating in that moment that like this what should have been such a normal healthy existence that i had led should have been accessible by everyone who was sitting around me um mm-hmm. it was just frustrating i think in that moment and like humbling also uh cuz it just shouldn't be that way but um it was my first like real tangible, impactful experience outside of my little affluent meritocratic high school bubble. Um, and I realized that like so many of the people who were around me in this school had worked probably 20 times harder to get there than I ever had. Um, it was Yeah, it was sobering for sure. And I think that sort of catalyzed the beginning of, of everything that happened after that. Um, and it's just like, you know, meeting people who came from very different backgrounds, talking to them becoming friends with them. Um, I genuinely believe that like having a diverse community is what makes you more open-minded because you just like, I think it's hard for the human brain to imagine things that it's never encountered. And so the more that you encounter, the more you're able to like, imagine the crazy things that can exist outside of it. Um, um, because your like array of possibilities expands infinitely. Um, yeah, exactly. so that's kind of that was my college experience. yeah, so it it opened my mind a lot. I mean, you know, my parents will call it brainwashing, but I think it was the opposite. <laughs> so, yeah.
0: I, I think definitely this is kind of related to the topic of today, like the balance between um, one's own realization and the mentorship that, you know, um, places like Wesley and other um, mentorship opportunities provide. Because, like, it's that notion of like, you could bring a camel to water, but you can't make a drink or whatever. Uh, right. But it's like um, you have to have that kind of like introspect. Perspective, as well as some kind of like external thing that Rex mentioned with his sibling, or like you know that you've mentioned with um, Wesley, Wesley, like mm-hmm. where you you it's 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 those two factors that combine to make people quote unquote woke or uh, to to understand that okay things do have to change because things are broken and um, you know being exposed to different viewpoints um, also kind of helps to like with that self-examination, I think, and actually with the mentorship as well. But mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's what I'll say about that. I think. Um, any <laughs> any thoughts or?
1: <laughs> no, yeah, no. I mean, I have nothing to add. Okay. <laughs> not very accurate. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, I, I guess on that point, do you think youth mentorship within the API community uh, mm-hmm. has to be tailored in, in any particular way? If so, if not, um, one thing I would. Kind of add on to this question and you kind of mentioned it a little bit mm-hmm. uh with this merit-based um notion but like uh how much do we have to address things like the model minority myth and mm. all these other things yeah,
1: yeah not just that but that um there's a great paper i forgot who wrote it um mm-hmm. the triangulization the triangulization of like the model minority myth, oh that, like yeah yeah, yeah. The, the, like the model yeah. minority yeah. myth th- that paper honestly like blew my damn mind i think i read it like five times just <laughs> thinking about all the different ways I'd never thought about the model minority myth because prior to reading that paper model minority myth to me meant that like people assumed I was good at math you know like it was a really like shallow understanding I was like yeah yeah, "Yeah, that's like my perspective at the time before reading this paper was that like the model minority myth is kind of irritating (laughs) and like that's sort of where I was on it but now I realize that like the model minority myth is like Extremely Deep. important yeah. in enforcing white supremacy, exactly, because yeah. it triangulates you, the model minority, against the lesser minorities, yeah. um, which are considered, you know, like the black and brown people. Yeah. Um, and without the existence of you as like a third-party um, comparator, yeah. that it would be impossible to oppress uh, black and brown people the way that the, that white supremacy does. And so, in many ways, like by participating and like opting into model minority, um, you are buying into white supremacy, and so supporting um white supremacy as it like perpetuates <laughs> and propagates this is why i hate like yeah.
2: calling it a myth it's not a myth it's like a conservative yeah exactly system.
1: exactly yeah. like it was this was a very intentional like creation yeah. of white supremacy um, like you can see the history
2: yeah. of it too there was a, it didn't co- it didn't exist until like the 70s when
1: precisely yeah
2: like when, when uh, yeah. repealing the asian exclusion like Actively yep. brought in more Asians, you know. Yep. So yep. now they're like, "Oh shoot, we can't just have all these yellow, black, and brown mm-hmm. people uniting because that's what yep. they did during because the civil Because class rights.
1: solidarity is what yeah, that solidarity scared yeah. the hell
2: out of them. They got a CoIntel pro that crap, and then yep. tacked on the model minority myth after
1: right exactly and not just that but to to reinforce the model minority myth by like specifically selecting for highly educated people from Mm -hmm. like east and south asian countries so that we like our tech industry is now powered entirely by east and south asian immigrants and like oh yeah these are like these are the doctors and the lawyers and the engineers like they come from east and south asia therefore east and south asian people are like categorically better in some way because like the ones that we see here in the states are all of the the highest educated most
2: affluent ones like yeah the most well, the poor people there still live in like shanty towns like yeah. Albert's. Uh, there's like a
1: huge range of, of financial socioeconomic existence in East and South Asia still. Yeah, it's it's like a much wider range, actually, than we see in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But I will say the economic distribution is more equal than in yes, the U.S.
1: for sure. It, it may be wider in range, but the distribution is a little more even. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I mean, at this point, we're at like pre-French Revolution levels. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah.
0: So. laughs> Instead of having cake, we're getting crumbs, too. <laughs> right, exactly. Forget the cake. I mean, we're not going to get any other that (laughs) um but yeah so like in in terms of mentorship though like Mm -hmm. so how do you how would you approach um that for the api community um
1: yeah well i mean the first thing for me is like thinking about it again as like if i were still in high school and i had access to this kind of a mentorship program like Mm -hmm. what would I mentoring my past self? Like, what would I, what would I do? Um, and I do think that this whole, like the fact that I still up until what, like two years ago, still thought of the model minority myth as like largely harmless. Um, I, that's something that I would tackle like head on. Right. That needs to be tackled head on if we do have some kind of an AAPI youth mentor. Actually, I want to pause for a moment and call it the fact that like AAPI as a concept is a little bit screwed. It is. Um, like uh, as a category. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit random. Like, why are Pacific Islanders in here? <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah, it's just, like, technically basically...
2: indigenous folks that yeah, would colonize like,
1: <laughs> exactly. Like they should probably be their own <laughs> disambiguated category.
2: Yeah,
1: um, right. And and like uh like Asian American disaggregated data is like a whole other company conversation that has to happen but like uh, I want yeah. to pause for a moment and like recognize it as, it as a, a conversation. person of
2: southeast asian as well right as exactly descent, it's
1: like i guess if we talk about like asian youth mentorship then let's like go with the more broad or less specific, i don't know if it's more broad necessarily but like a vague term yeah um that if we, for example, in my case, let's say I was like specifically trying to create like an East Asian youth mentorship network, which I'm not <laughs> we're, we, the whole point of us, our network that I'm trying to build is like, um, to try and, and break down barriers. But let's say I did want to do like a more focused program. Right, right. Um, I do think that like in the case, for example, let's say within this, this wider program that I'm, that we're working on, mm-hmm. um, that we do try to pair that some people want, um, pairings that match them across like similar backgrounds. And I think there's value in that, right? Like if people request that, I would actually probably try to match them that way. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's say I was mentoring someone who was a lot like my past self. Um, I do think that (laughs) a key consideration would be, would be to bring up that triangulation of like the model minority myth because it's not something that we're taught in schools um it's not something that you even think about when you go to a school that's like majority Asian because mm-hmm. when you go to a school and you grow up in a community that's majority Asian that's your default like yep. my default yep. existence yep. Yep. in my head is an Asian American person like when I think of a default human being it's an Asian American person because that's what I grew up with um just like 87% of the people around me were Asian American um, specifically, actually largely East Asian even. So that's just, that's, that's what I was used to. So uh, it's a conversation that has to happen. So I guess the point is that we have to in any kind of like Asian youth mentorship, we have to point out our place in, in the white supremacy narrative um, that we are not devoid of responsibility uh, in this history and that we do have to actively take action to be anti-racist, right. To be actively anti-racist and not just like not a racist <laughs> in our work in this system is like, that we have to actually work in it um, instead of just being passive. Like, oh, well, I'm a person of color. So I am like excluded from, I don't know, whatever. I can't be racist because feet. I don't yeah. see color. Right? <laughs> exactly. Like, I don't see color. We're like, I am a person of color. Therefore, I can't be racist. Like, that's all bull crap. Um, Like, we all saw, for example, with Crazy Rich Asians.
0: Oh, God.
1: How wrong it can go. <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, freaking. I have not yeah. yet watched. I
1: mean, like, so I just, I really, like, my ideal again ideal state <laughs> is yeah. that we can exist in a world where crazy rich asians is okay because we have so many other examples of good like more diverse <laughs> kinds of representation in our media <laughs> yeah. so the crazy rich asians is just one facet of it yep. because it's not like it's not like untrue like it's not that it doesn't exist it does but it's just like it the fact that it is the only representation we have i think says a lot about
2: for like 20 30 years <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly and probably so been like a Are whole representation
0: of singapore too but whatever.
1: exactly <laughs> yeah and honestly okay i guess as a quick tangential point the books actually do a much better job
2: oh, <laughs> i, I read that. the books it's
1: actually quite good and the books are written to be satirical um and the movie didn't feel as oh no. yeah so a lot of uh stuff missing in translation there but um the books were actually quite enjoyable i did really like them
2: you're yeah. supposed to, like, laugh at the decadence, not celebrate it.
1: Right? Uh, yeah, the whole point is to mock it. And also, the books do also, like, humanize the people in it, right? So, like, yeah. the decadence is not... Like, the people who are living in it are also affected by it right. in negative exactly. ways. Yeah. Um, is a good take.
0: Not what like the movie thing. was on. <laughs>
1: oh, absolutely not. No. The movie... Well, the movie did change some other things that were interesting in a way that I would describe as being kind of... Uh, girl boss gatekeep what's the third one gaslight
0: oh. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, i like, exactly that. That, I like that. that i like that i know that's a good term
1: it's like a huge meme on twitter right now oh, really? i think the correct order is gaslight girl boss gatekeep
0: like <laughs> i mean that makes sense <laughs> right first you gaslight and then you gaslight. <laughs> make sure nobody else can reckon yeah, all that.
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> terrible the, the,
1: the holy trinity
2: <laughs> yeah. oh god we are living in changing times Mm. you see uh people taking stuff that are satirical of uh (laughs) say nazis and being actual nazis (laughs) you see gentrification right before your eyes but on topic how has youth mentorship changed before your eyes
1: Yeah. I guess my experience with it would be like as a mentee and then shifting more into like mentor roles over time. Um, I honestly think that like the core of mentorship is never going to change. Right. Uh, the thing that I do see a lot of is that there's a sort of an industry focus on mentorship. Um, this, this concept that I think, especially in like, women in tech spaces you'll hear it a lot and i understand that like women in tech is it's a complicated space for me because i identify as non-binary um specifically a gender Mm -hmm. and so i kind of fit into kind of a, a weird a weird place when it comes to women in tech because um it's relevant to me because people read me as a woman. Like I look and largely present, I guess, question mark. I don't know what presenting means anymore, but like mm. people read me as a cis woman. Um, I often do not correct them because it has no effect.
2: <laughs> on yeah, some of my friends have used the phrase, um, yeah. some of my NB friends have used the phrase, I'm politically a woman.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like I'm politically question mark a woman. Um, and so I continue to participate in women in tech spaces because it's relevant. Like I, I have a, a relevant, like, perspective to offer there um, and things to learn as well from from fellow women in tech so uh, in that space um, mentorship has been uh, an evolving discussion because I think for a while <laughs> I want to say again that maybe Cheryl Sandberg's again I have complicated feelings about like Cheryl Sandberg's whole lean in thing um, Wait, what? in that like Cheryl Sandberg wrote a book called lean in that I have very complicated feelings about and have never been able oh, to finish reading one. because it makes me feel so uh, uh, tangled um, I don't think this was her purpose, but I do think, like, I don't think she intentionally did this, but I do think that a lot of her narrative kind of places the onus on women to, like, step up and lean in and, like, take a seat at the table and, like, speak up, you know? Like, oh, why aren't you speaking up? It's sort of like <laughs> the accusatory tone that <laughs> I think she, I, I think she <laughs> didn't mean, I genuinely think that she didn't mean to do this. um mm-hmm. But that's sort of like, that's the fallout. Like, that is actually what happened after she wrote that book, because people are like, yeah, we should, like, if you want to be a successful woman in tech, you should speak up, like, talk loud. Harder, negotiate harder um which i don't think is the solution but um again you know it takes all kinds yeah, you gotta trip yeah. out the wall from every angle and so like if that works for you then that's great like i hope it continues to work for you
2: yeah um, i've heard uh, lean in feminism which is <laughs> non-intersectional white feminism, lean in
1: feminism. it's like lean in feminism has a lot of turfs oh yeah, yeah 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 um, it's the
2: quintessential girl boss book Oh
1: God. Yeah. It's a That's very girl boss mentality. Exactly. Yeah. And so I actually think that a lot of the narrative around, around mentorship and women in tech has been driven by a lot of people who like buy into the girl boss narrative. I can see that. I can see that. Um, right. And the girl boss narrative is very systemic, right? It's very procedural. Um, it means that like mentorship to them means setting up mentorship networks where yeah. we have you fill out a Google form about what you're interested in and <laughs> try to pair you with other people who have similar interests. Um, and maybe are like farther down the specific path that you want to walk. But uh, my experience over time has been that my path has diverged many times and that my mentor, despite that, has been an incredible asset to me because they're able to offer their life perspectives on the path that they've walked and the ways that their paths have diverged. Mm-hmm. Um, and so instead of this very like sort of prescriptive way of looking at mentorship, um, I feel like over time as people have participated in more of these very structural programs, that they're starting to see that it's a little bit too restrictive mm-hmm. um, and people are moving towards more organic methods of mentorship. And so now when you attend, um, conferences that maybe there's a talk about women in tech or something and like mentoring women in tech, you'll, you'll hear a lot more speakers talk about how you really have to find like sponsors i think it's like the word that people are starting to use now that you look for mentors who organically you connect with and it's it's not yeah. about like messaging people to be like hi will you please be my mentor but rather that like you sort of naturally connect with certain people um because you have like similar energy or shared momentum right. in some way so um rather than trying to and, and of course like not everybody can do that like not everybody is um wired (laughs) to organically reach out to people or you may not have the luck necessary even to to meet people who you jive with Um, and so like these structural mentorship programs can help you in situations like that but you have to go outside of those networks and like find people you connect with who may not be in your industry Mm -hmm. or may not come from a similar background as you um, and to make those connections those interdisciplinary inter intergenerational inter whatever inter everything connection intersectional how about that inter yeah <laughs> sectional even i feel like even intersectional is a little bit limiting that it's it very disciplinary right? oh yeah That's um yeah so inter inter everything that you cross all kinds of boundaries to find people who are different from you actually um but who still share your values and to treat those people as your mentors and again like that mentorship is not um a, a single direction right like people who have been my mentors before mm-hmm. i have been i think a source of mentorship for them as well as as things have unfolded and our paths have changed um so like yeah it's not a one-way it's not a one-way street like mentorship is a relationship between two people where you both are contributing to each other's worldviews and like evolving over time together Um, it's a growth process that you engage in together and so i think that's the shift that i've started to see happen and i'm really excited for it actually because i'm hoping that um I think there's a tendency to to bias towards having more structured programs. And that's, I think, a good thing for the most part. Um, But I'm hoping that as we value these organic connections more, that people will become more, I think, intentional about them and like aware of them, Um, because that's going back again to the very beginning, what we were saying about like networks of giving, Mm -hmm. um, that this is what. That being intentional about your giving is what is able to is what causes these networks to build up. Otherwise, you're just kind of like giving into the void. So, yeah,
0: um,
1: I'm, that's sort of the direction that I'm hoping it's moving into that. We're part of a community that gives to each other instead of like a specific mentorship generational chain that gives downward um, in a single direction. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I really agree with that in terms of um, the organic relationships of both directions, because I mean, that is what the open source community does. It's yeah, like yeah. open
1: source me. is a great example of a community that just like gives and gives and gives and gives yeah. and never seems to stop, yeah.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, yeah, I think like that's a lot of um, exciting things, especially that I, probably the stuff like the girl boss um, thing that you're mentioning. <laughs> is it like, is like the beginning? And then we kind of move away from that in terms the, mm-hmm. the structure organizational-wise, et cetera, to, to more of this organic thing uh, approach because it, it kind of feels like the history of urban planning and this is my background, right? So it's like, you know, planners used to think that everything should be like be grid pattern and stuff like that. And then mm. they took that to the next level with the suburbs and like, okay, we're going to make all these cul-de-sacs that are just... Copy-paste,
1: copy, like, copy copy, copy-paste. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: And then, but now you have someone like uh, Jane Jacobs who is uh, another great urban planner um, back in New York basically saying, Cities can't be planned because the the real important cities around the world are the ones that organically grow, um, the the community. And so those
1: are my favorite. Yeah.
0: Yeah, like you know, Rome, Paris, um, Mm. all these places weren't weren't deliberately like you know created. It was it was a fabric of different patchwork and.
1: Yeah, yeah. You look at most downtowns and they look chaotic, right? Mm -hmm. Like I the the big cities I'm most familiar with are Boston or Shanghai, and they both sort of evolved from like little fishing villages, basically. So they all have like really weird intersections that are like star shaped and like pointy right. and the buildings are pointy on that particular <laughs> intersection. Cause you have to fit onto the weird shaped block question mark. Is it even a block? <laughs> but, like the, I've, It's the chaos of these areas of like old town Shanghai and old Boston that like really give it character and like give it a sense of like history. Like these yeah. are the roads that our ancestors walked and built and evolved. Yeah. yeah. And that's why we're here now. Yeah.
2: Exactly. My sibling and I were reading a book of, called, I forgot what it was called but one of the terms was like uh high modernism oh. where it's this authoritarian ideology with uh when it comes to um city pl- urban planning where you look at it from the sky rather than walk it. Mm-hmm. So it's like straight lines and yeah mm-hmm. easy for traffic but unhealthy for people. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm
0: yep i mean i i hate modernism uh, as a, urban planning like so mumford lewis mumford can go suck it this is my <laughs> <laughs> my podcast yeah. message my last one that we ugh. have a few modernist
1: buildings on our college campus too
0: oh my yeah. god right like he took over like they're just and they're just so ugly like yeah i mean in my opinion
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's true beauty is very subjective <laughs>
2: but yeah i, I yeah, i'm but. not much of a modern urban society person either because it's like everything's just boxy and gray yeah exactly yeah. It's function over form oh yeah. mm, Sorry. Mm-hmm.
1: Anyway. well so then i guess i'm curious about like in terms of for example affordable housing mm-hmm. that's being built uh, and it tends to you know become more of that boxy archetype for right. like efficiency's sake how do you feel about the evolution of of that
0: oh well i mean honestly the the affordable housing it's basically rich white people thinking uh of what's the most efficient way to house poor people then instead of like actually trying to figure out uh what Mm. boxes exactly
2: boxes
1: right and it well it's happening again with like modular buildings
2: yes Um, oh god yeah and homeless boxes
1: yeah that's like a huge thing happening in the bay area right now like there's a too yeah
2: yeah we're trying to do uh boxes literally just sleeping boxes for homeless people and it's like
0: yeah it's it's the same thing i I, i'm gonna go back to what i mentioned earlier about like trying to apply technology across the board without thinking about the social um impacts because Mm -hmm. you know if, if you're trying to help people And you're just applying, whether it's programming tools or, you know, housing construction. It's like, you have to listen to the community if you're actually going to help them. And yeah,
1: yeah. And the community should be not just involved in the process, but driving it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's my modus operandi when it comes to uh, mentorship in terms of like, um, if you're, if you're ever in a position of giving, it's always important to understand that it's not a top-down approach, which is why I really resonated Mm -hmm. with what you're saying about like, it's, it's about... Um, because you can't sustain it either. Like, if, if you want to make a mentorship all about, like, I'm just giving you tools.
1: Yeah, I'm just, gonna... like, force-feeding you information.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I I would say that's morally bankrupt. I mean, because you're essentially... You're, you're thinking that you know everything, which... Is, is it's a pretty egotistical proclamation, I think. And mm-hmm. it's, it's something that is always changing. I mean, knowledge is fickle. Uh, what, what we know of today is different than tomorrow. Um, and so to, to think that, you know, whatever tools you're teaching is the right way to do things. And that's why every school is institutional. And I do think that um, a lot of professors, and I'm really gonna like, get some people yelling at me, but I would say a lot of professors are kind of part of that institution to not make change because they're comfortable with where they are. And it's it's the whole notion of why a PhD is so hard to get um, because you go through this process of like, basically, it's funny, it's indoctrination in a way too. <laughs> ha ha, ha.
1: indoctrination. <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> oh no. <laughs>
0: but yeah, it's because like you, like in order to be a PhD person, you have to buy into the system and really crush your um like your ability to understand that things aren't always what they seem and you could be wrong, (laughs) but no, it's like you have to pretend that you are right. And you know, your field of study so much that you're like, Oh
1: man, of- yeah. We say the same. Pheno- we see the same phenomenon in politics, right? Yes. That a lot of people who start with good intentions end yes. up uh, oh. like by the time you're able to game the system so that you could do anything meaningful, you're also fully bought into the system. Yes. And so, in many ways, it's it's too late for you. And so, it's a catch twenty two. Right. And I, and I grappled with that myself. Like, if I won I didn't win my election, but yeah. like if I had won my election, it's something that I would definitely would have been thinking about constantly. It's like, how do I act in a system that I don't agree with yeah, right, in a meaningful way that will still create change without me losing sight of my original purpose, yeah.
0: Okay, so last point, and you can make this quick if you want, uh, how can listeners support this empowerment of students in, from at risk in minority communities?
1: Yeah, action is the most important thing. I just spent yesterday ranting with a friend about how a lot of people are, we talk about like social media like social justice warriors i guess like yeah. keyboard warriors like all you do is you care about what you look like basically so you're like you're out here tweeting or facebook posting or whatever about mm-hmm. black lives matter or like you show up at a protest and you take some selfies and you post them and you leave you know like <laughs> yeah that is not showing up showing up is much more boring than that <laughs> showing up to me means going to your city council meetings and like hearing what the hell they're up to this time and they're like city planning shenanigans that you probably don't agree with and like speaking up during public comment about you disagree with and like holding your elected officials accountable by being in their face and like telling them and making it very obvious that you are listening and you are watching them because that's the only thing that's going to change their action is if they realize that like we're watching because otherwise city council and school board just do whatever the hell they want um and so really i know it's a really boring thing to ask of people but that like you should go to your city council meetings to your school board meetings you should skim the agenda i know it looks dense but just like skim it really quick right like what is on the table oh oh they're talking about school resource officers. You know, that's like, that's a big thing. Do we want cops on our campuses? How do I feel about that? What am I going to say during public comment about our decision here? Um, Like you really make your voice heard if you are in a position to do so, right? Thinking about the people that you are Trying to not just not really represent, but like to elevate the voices of people who may not have your privileges, who may not be able to attend these school board meetings because they might be working, I don't know, three jobs or something, or like taking care of their kids because childcare is super expensive. Like thinking really intentionally and acting intentionally about what kind of change you want to see. Mm -hmm. Who are the people in your community that you are trying to uplift? Are you genuinely? understanding their situation are you really amplifying their voices in a meaningful way or are you just kind of stroking your own ego um and like being very careful about that because it's very easy to relapse into the whole i'm stroking my own ego thing without realizing it yeah um activism has to be has to be consistent and it has to be community driven so um these are all things, when I want to ask people to do these things, I'm not saying that you should do it alone. Um, more important than anything else is to find your people mm-hmm. who are also interested in doing this and then to do it together. <laughs> yeah, sure. So I guess if there are any Bay Area listeners, um, a really exciting thing that's happened in recent months, uh, honestly, I guess it really, really, really kicked off. It's existed for a long time, but it really kicked off with the resurgence of the BLM movement in June um, this past year was uh, our Engage Fremont. Coalition, <laughs> we call it Engage Fremont, um, and I'm starting to see similar coalitions spring up around the Bay. So it's it's a community-driven coalition that involves lots of different coalition members. And the coalition members, just as an example of the Engage Fremont case, um, includes our Fremont LGBTQ plus task force. It includes um, our student activists. There are two student activist groups. It um, it can include our teachers' union if they would like to participate more. And we do have like individual teachers' union members um, joining our cause. Um, um, and it just like, it goes on, right? Like anyone can be part of the coalition and we are very intersectional in our, um, operations i guess so um what we what do we do like sure we have a presence on social media but our goal of the social media outlets is to like inform and educate and like enable people to reduce the barriers of entry when it comes to showing up to public comment for example which is it can be a very daunting thing like i'm not saying it's easy it's really scary the first time you show up to a school board meeting stressful. to make <laughs> it's so stressful yeah. um and so to try to make it like a more welcoming community where you feel like you're supported and we're all in this together you know so like in our case greenbeach prime's case we're all on like screaming with each other um whenever there's a school board meeting that we're all showing up at and so you don't feel so alone like you're not alone in this battle right so find your community of advocates and organizers and organize like really turn people out and show up um and this is rich coming from me because i kind of burned out and i had to step away for a moment um but i will be back right like i'm fully intending to to jump back in um and i have endless respect for the people who don't burn out and i don't know how they do it i'm still trying to figure that out myself it's a balance
0: um, i mean yeah you, you, You can't um it's it's the same thing with giving uh with what you're talking about with with mentorship mental health is very as much important Mm -hmm. um (laughs) as an activist then yeah because i mean it it goes back to the first episode with claire Lau, who's the co-founder of sf bernicrats and she Mm -hmm. um really was talking about how people should get involved but also understand that you know it's we have to um balance that with you know our our own personal goals what Mm -hmm. we want to do for our lives and yeah
1: like know your limits yeah Yeah. exactly know your limits and i think also like set expectations with your fellow organizers right like make it really clear how much i'm able to contribute and like if i go beyond this i will burn out so like that's what i'm trying to figure out for myself right now the other thing that i'm realizing as i'm like sort of reflecting on like why i burned out so quickly i mean it wasn't that quick i guess i literally ran a campaign which i don't know how i did that but um Uh, I'm realizing that my motivations were coming a lot from a place of like guilt and obligation. So I was feeling like I was obligated to get back to this community. So instead of coming out of a place of sort of like love and Mm -hmm. mentorship and like wanting to build up something, I was sort of showing up because I was scared that if I didn't show up, that I was not worthy of being part of this community. And like, I think it's easy to lapse into that kind of like a negative mindset. So it's really important to course correct yourself and think really seriously about like why you're doing certain things. And like, like not every action that is actionable is going to be suitable for everyone. So like, maybe showing up to every single public comment was not the best way for me to be taking action. Like maybe building up this mentorship network that I keep talking about will be a better way for me to invest my energy. Everyone has a different part to play. Yep. I think the important the important part is that you are doing something. So, exactly. um, yeah. and not just doing something alone, but doing something as part of an organizing like entity, like a, a body that is moving together. So, yep. and yeah. I, I, say- I
2: completely feel you in that whole guilt and if I don't do something yeah. thing, I feel like that's a very like, Asian <laughs> raised sort of um mental yeah, yeah. mindset that we we get stuck into That's as funny. organizers and it just we, we have to recognize it and like slowly yes take yeah. it out of our yeah system it's...
1: yeah yeah we have to recognize that it's counterproductive yeah um it's not doing what we think it's doing yeah like guilt tripping people to show up is not doing what you
2: think it's
0: doing. no and and honestly <laughs> it's it's not sustainable i mean yeah exactly like like rex mm-hmm. was saying earlier like these institutions didn't build themselves overnight mm-hmm. uh, and so similarly these organizations they exist to make organizing easier right they're not they're, and it's, it's a way to keep that mentorship spirit In, uh, you know, both the um, youth mentorship that you're talking about, but also in the spirit of um, kind of breaking down all these silos and barriers that are up in place to support things like white supremacy. Yeah.
1: And the last thing I will also want to bring up is that I think that anyone who's first getting into this um like it's easy for me to say like find your organizers like find your people yeah. but it's harder to actually do that. And it so is. like a question I get a lot is like well how do I do that? Like how do I find the local organizers who are doing things. Um and I honestly think that it starts with showing up. So it, like show up as an individual individual first. Yeah. Um hear the names that like usually people introduce themselves by name as they start their public comment like Start to pay attention to what names consistently show up. Like who are the people who are always there? Right. Reach out to those people and ask like, are are you part of like a more concerted effort? Like, is there, uh, I don't know, a Slack group, a Discord server, a Facebook chat that I can be part of where you're organizing together. Um, and like finding, you just need to find one or two people and eventually someone will be able to point you in the right direction. Cause I don't think there exists a single place where there is no one trying to do something.
0: Yeah, exactly. And uh, and on top of that too, it's picking the the battles that you want to
2: fight on. Like,
1: oh yeah. 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 Choose, Uh, choose the topics that the things that matter to you personally. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm not very specially good at, the public comment stuff. And right when mm-hmm. I go, I need a lot of support. I'm better at the stuff that isn't mentioned.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So like maybe <laughs> you, you know can that? help. Like there are lots of other skill sets, right? Like we need people to be running the yeah. social media. We need right. people to be writing emails. Like <laughs> we do this. Yeah. yeah. You got
2: to go find yeah. materials yeah. you gotta but
1: what matters is you do what you can yeah, yeah. and maybe yeah. public comment isn't for anyone it isn't for everyone but i hope that even people who really don't like it will show up for the ones that really matter right like so for example when the sro debate was raging in, in fremont we had a lot of people show up to speak who usually are not comfortable speaking and i like i think i think we see that in each other and we appreciate it yeah, yeah. it means a lot yeah
0: definitely Well, those are some really good points to leave off on, and it's actually a great um, kind of return to um, the beginnings of the podcast because it is, you know, we were trying to figure out how do listeners get active and how do you sustain that without burning out? And mentorship is a great way to um, pass that baton over to both the people and the mentor mentee mentor and mentee yeah <laughs> so um, mentorship
1: yeah. is a two-way street i feel like that's like this that, yeah that's, <laughs> <The> a, <title. laughs>
0: that's a title title yeah exactly I, <laughs> I agree with that and it's it's, it's mm-hmm. not looked at in like that often i think because of even the terms mentor mentor mentee whatever it feels
1: directional mm-hmm.
0: exactly so um yeah I, I really appreciate the time that you took to came on, come on the show to talk about that um any other comments you'd like to make
1: Oh, just that I, it was an honor being here and it was great talking to you both and hearing your thoughts about everything. (laughs) I feel like I've been radicalized through this podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. No, no. I I mean, I really appreciate the work that you've done and, um, you know, it's always like inspiring to hear from candidates and people who've also put on campaigns um, Mm -hmm. because like that's that's part of the showing up that you're talking about, and mm. it, it's important to recognize that it's a it's a huge effort. I mean, it's not an easy task to you know get out, put your name out there, and get people to. Um, get on to quote unquote your side or whatever, because it's, mm. it's yeah, it's.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I mean, we also disagree a lot, right? We're all, we're all have our, we all stand from our own positions and have our own opinions and yeah. exactly. you're not always hundred percent aligned, but what matters is your, your end vision is aligned. And so you're, you're willing to put aside whatever disagreements and work towards
0: that together.
2: Well, diversity yeah. of tactics is Absolutely. where we can all agree on. So <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah.
0: That's our agreement. <laughs> exactly. Um, thank you so much again, Lucy, for coming on the show. And
1: thank you for having me.
2: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of WhatsApp. Remember to like, subscribe, or follow. Be sure to leave a comment because we always look forward to feedback and enjoy hearing what our listeners have to say.